podcast where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Labe Littman, cognitive neuroscientist who is cruising along as a psychology professor, encountering a lot of the familiar problems with the reliability of research participants and their responses. But what did he do? He took matters into his own hands, uh, applied some novel technology to improve the quality of the data, uh, and eventually uh, struck out on his own, co-founded a company called Cloud Research. And I'll say I'm very happy that, that there are people like Labe out there in this industry uh, who are solving these thorny, persistent problems. Uh, but I also know there's some other cool things about Labe, like he's kind of a metalhead. I know that about him. Uh, and he's also a drummer, so that makes him A-OK in my book. So welcome to the podcast, Labe. Uh, thank you for having me. That's great to have you. Great to have you. Super happy to have you on. Appreciate you taking the time. So let's get started. Um, and let's start by talking about your experience as a professor doing academic research. Love to hear sort of the, the problems that you encountered that eventually kind of brought you into the research space. Yeah, so um, I, I did start out as a uh, psychology um, student at first, and we were uh, doing research in cognitive cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. I was uh, doing things like trying to understand uh, conscious and unconscious decision making and information processing. And um, I was in the middle of my dissertation, you know, collecting collecting data for my dissertation like every graduate student uh, tries to do. Sure. And it was, uh, it was, it was really tough um, finding participants for your research studies, right? Was right. Uh, this really difficult process. You had to go and try to recruit undergraduates from, their, from these introduction to psychology courses. Right. These guys didn't want to be there, you know, kind of like <laughs> out of bed in the morning and like, like, oh my God, I got to go and do this, you know, psychology experiment. <laughs> and so um, I just remember my first study took, took about uh, a full semester, about three months, just to, oh, wow. just, to get about, just to get about 60, 70 people to take, to take the study. And it was, right. it was just how that, that's how things um, were done. And it was very difficult. It was very time consuming. And um, it really interfered with like, the ability to, to scale research. And... Um, then when I went on to, uh, to do my uh, postdoctoral fellowship, mm -hmm. uh, doing research then more on uh, brain imaging, and it was, a, it was, it was also this, the, same, the, same kind of, the same kind of problems right. uh, with recruitment. And it was right around, I think, 2010 or so that I, I came across different online platforms mm -hmm. where it, it seemed like it would be possible to leverage the ability to recruit participants online, right? And have them and have them and have them participate in these in these research studies. And um, no one no one was doing it back then in, in in academia. Nobody was doing it in science, like in psychology departments, business departments, you know, linguistics, sociology. It just that's not how things were done. Right. But, but I just I will never forget 
what it was like to do my very first research study with online participants. I mean, it was just, uh, I click a button, 500 respondents would complete your study, you know, within, within like an hour. And then you'd have your, 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 your graphs like right there, you know? Right. Um, and he, as soon as that happened, uh, as soon as I collected my first research study in that way, I, I just sat back and, and I, and I, uh, I thought, my God, you know, this is a, a scientific revolution that is, is just waiting to happen. Yeah. And, and that's, how I got, that's how I got into um, this space with, uh, you know, market research platforms and trying to recruit participants online and so on and so forth. I realized that at the time, even though it was possible to recruit participants uh, from online platforms, it, the process wasn't really optimized for the kind of things that academics were doing. And so okay. I teamed up with, uh, with a colleague of mine, um, Jonathan Robinson, he's a, he's a computer science PhD. And so together we, we founded uh, Cloud Research and initially it was a uh, set of research tools to help academics, but then it grew into uh, other things. One of the first things that we realized was, hey, there's a real data quality problem right. on online research. And so we create, created all these solutions on cloud research and eventually that's how uh, we kind of came to be doing what we're doing today. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. And, and you're not working just with academia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we started with that with academics. That was just just for a couple of years, and you know, once we realized that there were all these data quality problems uh, that we created solutions for, it, it then became kind of an, a very interesting uh, two way street because we realized that the platforms that academics were using at the time, and they were primarily using one platform, by the way, <laughs> academic around 2010 through 2015 uh, in 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 academia, people were using this platform called Mechanical Turk, um, which is kind of like, a, it's not a traditional market research online panel, but it is an online panel. Um, and it is a very unique one. And it, you can do a lot of great qual kind of studies there. And there's all, all kinds of things you can do through Mechanical Turk. Um, but it was not enough to really address all the needs of, of academics. And so what we did was we try to help academics leverage all kinds of other market research platforms because of course there were hundreds of them. Um, and sure. so we kind of incorporated the, uh, all these other suppliers into, into cloud research. So, there, so we felt like there was a way to like help academics through uh, making them understand the market research space yeah. better so that they can leverage it for their research studies. But at the same time, we also realized that the data quality problems are also there on these market research platforms. So we thought that we can help the market research space solve the data quality issues. And so we then really started to work with academia, uh, academia and uh, industry uh, and the, the, the corporate market research world to help them in, in, in both of those ways. Okay, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear you arrive to this place with of online research um, from an academic angle when it was you know, relatively mature around that time on the commercial side, um, but there's great thinking that can come from both sides. Um, and so that's really cool. So you mentioned data quality problems. 
Um, what specific types of problems are you solving with cloud research? Right, so data quality problems are really ubiquitous in the online research space. Uh, Opt-in panels, uh, there are hundreds of them, and they all suffer from something that we just call bogus respondents. Mm -hmm. And uh, the scope of the data quality problems in online opt-in panels has been extensively investigated by uh, many different teams. Uh, you know, dozens, there were dozens of reports, dozens of, dozens of scientific studies and white papers. Yeah. It's just a well-known issue that that's widely recognized to kind of plague the uh, online panel industry. And those uh, data quality problems, they, they come from, uh, from several sources and they lead to many different kinds of issues. And one of these issues was explored in a recent report by the Pew Research Center that mm -hmm. uh, looked at 50 different online panels. And they found that across all 50 of them, there are these bogus respondents that are just so bad that their data are completely unusable. They're not paying any attention. And they're really a lot worse than just inattentive because okay. inattentiveness creates noise which is bad enough, but what these people do, the, the Pew Research Center found, was that they systematically say yes to pretty much any question that they're asked. Right, so they screen in and they qualify. And... They screen in and then they qualify, right? That's one, that's one problem that, that creates. But also once they start the survey, they'll just, they'll just say yes to everything. It's, oh, do you, uh, do you eat McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, yes. Do you recognize this brand? Do you, uh, are you, do you do you like this brand? It's like yes, 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 right? right? And what ends up happening because of that is you get these illusory effects where a researcher thinks, oh wow, like there's brand recognition here, but really there isn't. It's just it's just random, you know, or systematic yesing mm -hmm. and acquiescence bias. And then what it also does is that it creates these um, illusory correlations because when people say yes to multiple items it will create statistically significant associations between them that aren't real, but you think they are. And, that, and this, this, this has been really explored also in, in, in the literature. Like for example, there was a recent study that was done uh, on uh, Facebook use and anxiety. And there was this like association that suggested that people who use Facebook are, are anxious. And you can easily see how people can like really run away with this. Like, oh, maybe using Facebook causes you to be anxious. And you could see how even like uh, the media might pick up on something like this and run away with it because it has this like public, it's, it's an issue of public interest. Right. But then what ends up happening is when you break out the data set into like the bogus respondents and the regular respondents, it turns out that the entire correlation is driven just by those bogus respondents. And when oh. you take them out of the analytic yeah. sample, the correlation is statistically insignificant. It, it, it's not it's not there. So you basically are, what, what, what happens is you, you get these illusory effects, illusory correlations, and they uh, create huge problems uh, for the industry. And they also create huge problems for society at large because, because uh, increasingly opt-in panels are informing our society about a whole range of issues, yeah. right? They're used now for polling, they're used for medical studies, they're used for, for scientific research, they're used for market research, they're used for like, you know, consumer insights and, and the list goes on yeah. and on and on. 
Yeah. And a lot of these findings end up making their way into the in, into the news cycle, yeah. and a lot of this information actually that make, makes itself makes its its way into the news, and I can give you plenty of examples of of, of those, um, also becomes a problem for the kind of misinformation that we see around us uh, in, in in society. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just huge problems. Absolutely. I, I'm sure many of the researchers, myself included, uh, who are listening to this podcast and point to examples in their professional career where they've encountered some serious issues with data quality. So glad to know you're tackling it. So um, let me take a step back, though, Leib. I'm, I'm curious, uh, at what point did you, did you realize that you wanted to study um, cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience as a discipline. Does that go way back? Yeah, it goes way back. I was uh, pretty much in high school uh, when I developed a fascination with the mind and the brain and just trying really want, wanting to understand how the mind works. Uh, in particular, I was always fascinated with consciousness, which really is a, is a philosophical area of, of inquiry mm-hmm. uh, and also a scientific one. And uh, right around when I was uh, when I was in in college in the in the '90s is when brain imaging was just becoming a thing, and uh, there were all these kind of uncharted uh, territories that can be explored with uh, with fMRI, the you know, functional functional magnetic resonance imaging. Right. And so I just knew that hey, yeah, I really wanted to study cognitive science. Uh, in cognitive psychology, and I wanted to do brain imaging to really understand not only like the uh, the cognitive mechanisms of the mind, but also what are the like underlying neurological uh, neural underpinnings of these uh, of these uh, mechanisms of, of the human mind. Yeah, once you get into it, uh, the, the content is just so engaging, right? It's just like every little bit you learn, you realize how little you know, and you just want to learn more and more, right? All right, so. Your background is interesting. Uh, just thinking about where you are now, uh, having been a cognitive psychologist uh, and now sort of tackling uh, some of the operational problems in research. Uh, curious to know from your perspective as you look ahead, uh, and maybe it's maybe it's this is about online research, or maybe it's broader. So where where do you think research is is heading now from what you see at your vantage point? Yeah, so I think you know you could just talk about this from from the perspective of where um, research came from over the last fifteen years, and I, I really think it transformed our society just in terms of how we access information and, and how we get information uh, through the kinds of online sources that are that, that are now available. Right, it, it just really transformed so many aspects of our society, like. Uh, polling is is, is now uh, so much of it is done with online sample sources, right? And so much so much science is being done through that uh, as well. And of course, like things like market research, uh, medical research, public health research. So, just in the last fifteen years, so much has changed in terms of how we access data. And just thinking about where it's going, I think there's going to be a lot more of that. And uh, society is going to be impacted more and more by these kinds of uh, online panels being leveraged for inf- for insights and for information and for data. 
Um, and I think that the more that happens, uh, the more sort of our, our industry has a kind of like a social responsibility to really take seriously the idea that we are, you know, not only um, in the news, right, but we are, uh, we are the news, like we are informing the news cycle. Right. And, uh, and I think that's going to be, there's going to be a lot more of that happening. Uh, and the... The, the, the immediate consequence of that is that we need to take data quality extremely seriously because data quality, you know, bad data quality is not just like the researcher's problem. It, it's, it's now becoming society's problem uh, yeah. as well. And so I think like what should be happening in the future um, is that the industry as a whole should be becoming more aware of just how prevalent data quality problems are and should really uh, seek out the kinds of um, solutions that are validated uh, and where there is really like validated uh, evidence that, hey, yeah, like if you uh, apply certain approaches or certain solutions to these data quality problems, that you really get an effective result and you really get a clean sample uh, on the other end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's an interesting point about it becoming society's problem. I just think about uh, all of the discussion years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, whatever, uh, in the market research industry. There's so much around, oh, surveys are dead, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's all about big data now. Even though big data is so prevalent, it feels like surveys are such a big part of everybody's life now. They've only accelerated because they're just easy to do. And people get used to being asked for feedback. Uh, and, um, and it has big consequences, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I, I, there are just some really interesting examples of this. Um, so uh, la last year, around, um, around May of 2020, the Center for Disease Control was exploring what people are doing, this is just a couple of months into COVID, what, what are people doing to uh, stay safe, like behaviorally? How are they preventing, what are they doing to prevent COVID infection? And um, you know, there's a lot that people can do behaviorally and the CDC was uh, suggesting that people uh, you know, wash their hands very often and not touch their face and stay, you know, uh, things like that, right? And so the CDC wanted to know, well, how many people are actually doing that, right? So they conducted the study and it was, a, it, was a, it was a survey where they asked people, okay, are you doing you know, this and that and the other thing? And then they also wanted to explore maybe what are people, are some people going overboard? And so they asked people whether they were uh, doing things that maybe like they shouldn't be doing. And they had a whole bunch of questions about that. So are, are you uh, washing your food with bleach was one of the questions. Are you, mm. uh, are you, are you actually like drinking bleach to prevent COVID-19? <laughs> are, you, are you like drinking, you know, soap water to make sure that like, you know, you, you, that, uh, that you don't get infected. And so what they found was that uh, about 39% of people in the United States reported doing some of these things, right? And it, it just was like this astonishing finding that got picked up by over 150 different media outlets and media sources. And it was just worldwide news. Like everybody was talking, I mean, in Australia and Europe, people were talking about like, look, 
look at what like these Americans are doing, you know, just like what, what's going on? This, this seems totally crazy, right? And as it turned out, um, this was something that was exclusively driven by bogus respondents. So once you take the bogus respondents out of the sample and uh, we, you know, our team at Cloud Research actually like, did this study that we also ended up publishing. We did this together with uh, researchers at Columbia University's School of Public Health. You, do, you, you, you take that, you take that um, data set and you divide it into like the bogus respondents and, and, and everybody else. And the bogus respondents, 30% of them say that they're drinking bleach. With people who are regular respondents, there's literally nobody. Right. And so this just speaks to the importance of surveys, right? Because even, even such an important organization as the, the CDC, if they want to know what people are doing, they will conduct a survey. And they'll conduct a survey through these traditional market research online panels. Mm -hmm. And there are all these data quality problems there, uh, whether it comes from uh, like server farms, people from outside of the United States in um, in India who are like, you know, just kind of posing uh, as uh, people in the, in, the, in the United States, they don't really understand what they're reading. Uh, they're just kind of just trying to collect a little bit of money for filling out the survey. Uh, or there are these, you know, bot farms and so on and so forth. There are all these different sources of that data. And then they end up polluting the, the, the survey, right? And you get this illusory effect on the other end. And it really has the, uh, the potential to impact the news cycle and to impact even public health policy because the, the CDC actually wrote a report. This was a report in their flagship um, journal where they suggested that, you know, there needs to be, um, you know, resources put into these public health campaigns to inform people that like drinking bleach is not something you should be doing and so on and so forth. In the meantime, nobody was actually doing it. So a lot of public health policy can be informed by this kind of uh, erroneous uh, science. Yeah, direct policy implications. Um, one more question on this, because this topic is just so important. Uh, it's great to have you speak to it. Um, so thinking about those kinds of problems, you mentioned a couple of them, like bot farms or um, fraudulent responses who are just trying to collect points versus people who are maybe directly trying to sabotage survey results. You know, what, what's maybe the biggest of those problems and what is maybe the thorniest to solve? So bots are, uh, or automated um, scripts of various kinds, and, and they come in a variety of different forms. Uh, for example, there, somebody can click a button and will translate the survey into like a foreign language. So that allows people who really shouldn't be taking their survey uh, to be able to take it. They don't speak English, right? They don't really, right. they're not your target audience. So that's an example of automation that people use. People sometimes, there's automation there where you can just click a button and it'll just fill out a whole bunch of questions randomly. Um, if you have a, like a set of Likert items, uh, that's, that's automation uh, that, that, that's used very commonly. There, there's all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and that is one type of problem. Um, what we also see, which I think is an even bigger problem, is just general inattentiveness. Okay. Um, just generally regular folks, regular people who somehow got invited to take a survey 
they're totally not interested in paying attention. You know, they have no intention to pay to pay attention, you know, in the first place, but they're going to just click through it without really reading the questions. And that kind of responded together with the automated, you know, uh, bots and scripts and so on and so forth, really make up anywhere between 20 and 30% uh, of surveys in online samples, yeah. not, not, not uncommonly. Uh, and um, figuring out a solution for like finding someone who's trying to enter a survey from a different country by looking at like IP addresses and uh, geolocation tracking and so on and so forth is part of the solution, but it can't really find the people who are inattentive and people who are just kind of saying yes to everything, like, like, like what you said, right? People who are uh, either are like mischievous or they're just gonna say yes to everything for whatever reason. Um, we don't always know what's motivating them to do that, but finding those kinds of respondents is really, that's the bulk of the issue. Um, and that's really where like, where some of what we do is that we, we don't rely on just these tech solutions for IP deduplication or digital fingerprinting and things like that. What we do is we use behavioral methodology. And this is kind of where my academic research background comes in, where we use certain behavioral methods that we know can catch people who are inattentive and we put that into our data quality solutions. And that, that, that's, what, that's what enables us to be able to detect some of those uh, inattentive respondents and to just grab them out of the survey. Yeah, cool. Important work, important work for sure. Um, all right, so let me, let me switch gears here for a second, Lade. So this is a podcast, right? So I'm interested to know what other media, be it podcasts, blogs, journals, uh, whichever that you, you turn to for, uh, for professional uh, knowledge or inspiration or even enjoyment. What's on your media list? Yeah, so, you know, I, I personally am a huge fan of um, the, the teaching company or they're, they're called the Great Courses. Yeah. They just have like thousands and thousands of courses on just about every topic anything from history to physics, to chemistry, to, you know, math, to statistics, to like, you want to use, learn to use R or, you know, any, any really any, anything that, that could be a college course. Um, and there are lots of different um, things like that out there. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing that I really love about uh, the great courses is, is just the, the quality with which every, the production quality, like they will get yeah. like the, the best professors um, and they will uh, have them like, actually write out right, their entire course, uh, mm -hmm. which is usually anywhere between like 12 and 20, 20 usually like 24 or 36 lectures. Um, and it's just done so, so well. Um, and I've just been addicted to it, honestly, for, for the yeah. last probably 12 years or so. Like whenever I'm in the car, that's what I listen to. And, um, um, and now they recently came up with this um, app where uh, you didn't even have to like buy each course. It's like you get, you get like some nominal fee every month. Uh, you have access to like all these different courses. So that's my thing. That, that's, what I, that's what I listen to. And I, I, I just, um, I find a tremendous amount of like inspiration and, and just so much, so much knowledge out there that is presented in such a concise and 
effective way. Um, that that's kind of my go-to go source for uh, for that sort of thing. Yeah, cool. I've taken a couple of those as well, and I I totally agree with what you're saying. Oh, that's awesome. So, cool. All right. So so, Lave, you and I have have talked music a little bit. Have talked music. Um, and so I do know that that you're a little bit of a metalhead here. Uh, so we've, we've got some some bands. Yeah, we got some bands in common that we enjoy. Uh, but don't don't let me uh, don't let me color your answer to this question. Uh, but this is what I really want to know. You're talking all the smart stuff, but uh, what I really want to know, Labe, is you're stranded on a desert island. You've got three records at your disposal for the end of your days. What are they? Yeah, that's uh, that's an awesome question. I um, I would have to go back to my uh, kind of like teenage years of just getting into music, and I really fell in love with heavy metal. Um, and there are certain um, albums from that time period that are kind of timeless for me. I yeah. mean, I, I just know that um, you know if I haven't gotten uh, tired of listening to those albums over the last like 25 years, I can probably spend another, you know, <laughs> 50 years years on, 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 a, on an island and I, I probably won't, you know, uh, get, get tired of them um, yeah. in the future. So I would have to say that, uh, okay, the first album would be Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. Oh, yeah, yeah. Interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that album is just is just so great. It's a concept album. It's like a story, you know, from beginning to end, uh, and it's just got you know GF Tate with his like amazing like vocals, just amazing drums. It's just a, it's a, like a perfect album. Like it's one of my favorite albums. Very, very cerebral metal. Yeah, it's got yeah, it's got some yeah, some definitely uh, the story <laughs> is definitely cerebral. You kind of have to like follow it. It takes a while to figure out what's going on. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, the second one is more less metal, more, more punk. Uh, there's this one punk band that I love. My favorite one is Bad Religion. Dude, yes. Oh, come <laughs> on, Lee. There you go. Come on, man. <laughs> so, and it's hard to figure out, you know, which one is my, you know, favorite album. But I would go with, with um, Against the Grain. Oh, very, very nice. Just an absolutely shredding record, yes. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be my second one. And I kind of feel, feel like I have to mix it up a little bit. Can't you be all heavy metal, like a little bit of, uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great um, all right. And the third one, uh, I would have to go with, um, Metallica and, and justice for all. <laughs> Check um, me out, Liam. <laughs> yeah, it would, that would be my third. And, um, it, it's just one of these like really great Metallica albums. That's got all this like complexity and depth. Uh, that uh, I, I mean, I, there's lots of other great Metallica albums, but that one for me is the one that I would, that I would take to the desert. <laughs> oh man, I love it. Three for three metal albums. Well, Bad Religion, Punk Rock, close enough. <laughs> love those choices, totally. Uh, so I would certainly stop by and pay you a visit uh, on that island. <laughs> we, we could rock out in this. Uh, <laughs> rock out. Yeah. Super cool. All right, Leib, uh, thanks so much for sharing your, your insights around uh, data quality. It's uh, a persistent issue and glad to know you're tackling it. Uh, love to talk metal, all that good stuff. So let's do so again soon. And rock and roll. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.